Um, I would like to announce that tomorrow, the day after, maybe tomorrow, we have an unscheduled panel discussion on the question whether we are already at the point of that the basis is going permanent into permanent backwardation. We are very fortunate to have uh, Nathan Nerusis of Vancouver, Canada here and Gran Suchetki of the Perth Mint. <laughs> and I have talked to them and it seems to me that the situation is far more advanced than I thought it was when I was preparing for this. So what I I just have to take all bets off. <laughs> I was <laughs> I, I was suggesting two years, but this stands to be revised after I have listened to their presentation. I think it's extremely interesting and, and I, I expect a great deal from them and I'm sure you will have interesting questions to ask them. So we'll start tomorrow. I will set up a time for them, one of the four daily sittings and, and uh, I in, invite your active participation. So we are looking forward to this. Thank you very much. Okay, this is my turn. Uh, what, what I'm doing here basically is I'm going to try to put some of this theory into practical sort of, you know, real numbers and this kind of thing. Um, and with that, uh, there's one thing that I want to do to go back uh, to retreat a little bit on the uh, the, uh, uh, the basis uh, in terms of the grain elevator example, um, it occurred to me as I was looking around that maybe there's a lot of blank faces as to what the basis even is. Um, we know it's the difference between fusion and swap prices, but uh, in terms of how does a grain elevator operator use the basis, what does that mean to them? Um, I don't think we really connected all the dots. So um, the first thing I want to do is just to go back because I think it's pretty important to understand how that works because that's really where we build off of the basis uh, in terms of uh, the gold warehouse and what you would do as a, as a trader on the basis. Uh, so I like to use uh, boards, and so I'm going to do this. Uh, if anyone can't see this, please let me know. I might be able to adjust a little bit. Sorry, you might like to take it slightly further back so that the people okay. on the left of the room can, can see. Okay. But even before we go to the to green elevators uh, uh, as an example, uh, we have to actually take another step back because the uh, the concept here that, that I don't think I even really appreciated first when I started studying this, which is the what really spot price. Um, we talk about the spot price like it's some easy to determine sort of, you know, well, of course it's the physical price of gold, silver, whatever commodity is being traded, but in fact, the 
the spot price is is a, a price that happens between two parties. It's typically not an exchange. When it is an exchange, it's difficult enough to determine that, for example, at the LBMA, they do something called the daily fix, so that the price, the official price uh, for a spot gold or uh, silver uh, trade uh, on a daily basis in London is determined twice a day for gold and once a day for silver. The reason being is because all throughout the day you literally have individual parties trading uh, 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 gold and silver, but it's not standardized. So unlike a futures contract where it's each contract is for 5,000 ounces on the COMEX for silver or 100 ounces for gold, transactions are all sizes in, in the spot market and all sorts of terms, delivery in two days, delivery for allocated accounts, unallocated, uh, million ounces, 50,000 ounces, all over the place. Um, so there's nothing standardized about it. And as a result, uh, there really isn't, we talk about a spot price, but truly the, the spot price is just a guesstimate as to what really these transactions are taking place at. Uh, there is no exchange for this, so when, you, when we get the Kitco price, some of you guys are familiar, See the Kitco spot price. That's not really a price that it represents actual trades that occur. That is a feed from a bullion bank that tells you what customers on one side are willing to sell at and what customers on the other side are willing to buy at any one moment in time. Then they have an algorithm that essentially averages that and comes up with what you think the spot price might be. Uh, so this is actually pretty important because, again, going back to the basis, where the difference between the spot price and the futures price, but futures price is actually much as we think the futures markets are enigmatic, it's, it's pretty precise. I mean, you know exactly each trade you can get data for. I, I get data for every single trade that happens in the futures market. I know exactly how many contracts at what price, everything. A spot price, you do not get that. Um, the only reason we get that is because the bullion banks are kind enough to, <laughs> to tell us what it is. But of course, you know they may have their own interests in, in this algorithms, I mean, imagine if you have gold, someone wants to sell gold at, let's say, $700, and someone wants to buy gold uh, at uh, $650, you, you can have that at certain times. Uh, that's a pretty wide range. So what price does the bullion bank tell you is the spot price? Is it going to be closer to $700? Is it going to be closer to $650? $675, do they split in the middle? Do they, do they make changes? We don't know this. Uh, and so it is actually a... a one piece of the basis that is enigmatic and, and really difficult to try to get handled. Um, with that said, on the spot price, uh, let me go back to the grain. So we represent this as a grain elevator, um, and. Best rendition of wheat. <laughs> this is literally a farmer that has that that, uh, that is that is uh, that is growing the wheat. Now he's harvested it, and so now he wants to sell it. Uh, he has two options. One, he can try to find a buyer out in the spot market immediately. Uh, but as the professor was saying earlier, of course the harvest typically happens around the same time, so you've got all the farmers trying to sell at the same time. If that was the case, then. All who were trying to find buyers immediately for consumption, they would drive the price into the ground, and the last sale would be at like a penny for whatever. I mean, it would be ridiculously low. So, um, 
recognizing this, of course, uh, we've got the grain elevator uh, operator that says, well, I can store your wheat, and uh, I can give you a price for all of your wheat that is maybe not as much as you can get for the first you know, uh, bushel that you sell, but it's gonna be much higher than you would get if you try to sell all of it at once. Uh, so what happens is the, the farmer will sell this wheat and this, strange enough, is also a spot price. And this illustrates again that really when you talk about the spot price, it, it you know, it's, it's not just a single thing, it's with whoever you're doing it with. In this case, uh, the, uh, literally, the uh, farmer would be selling the wheat, as it were, to the elevator operator. Uh, now we know that the elevator operator here is in the business of making money off of storage, right? So. Uh, He's bought, let's say, wheat at $3 a bushel, and he is now going to be selling it in the future while the, you know, uh, until the next harvest is coming up at whatever price that he can get uh, to the eventual users, the bakeries, or whatever, whoever's that's using wheat. Um, he needs to make sure that he's not taking a loss the same way that the farmer would have taken a loss by selling later in the year, and the way he does this is he goes to the futures market. So this is where sort of the futures come into play. I represent the futures market's money because uh, the people that are in the futures market that are that the grain elevators op operator is selling to are speculators. These are people that are um, in the business of trying to second guess uh, the, the price and betting directionally, either up or down, long or short, uh, to essentially make money off of the movement uh, of the price of wheat. Um, in effect, what they're going to do is they're going to say, uh, let's So if the grain elevator operator is selling in the, in the future, in six months, um, wheat to a speculator in the futures market, um, that speculator is uh, going to have a certain price that uh, he is going to uh, want, obviously, uh, and that price is going to take into account his own expectations for what the price is going to be. I don't think that was the better. Um, this price here, interestingly, is based on nothing else. It's not based on what the storage cost here is, even though we talked about the basis. Remember, the cost of the basis is really the represents the cost of this storage. But really, the way that the speculator is approaching this is they just simply come up with a price that they think, um, you know, they the. Um, in fact, at the time, in six months, what the spot price might be at. Uh, because as you recall, the spot price and the futures price will converge at the, uh, at, at the time that this future contract is expiring. And so, obviously, if you're going long, you want the price to go higher. You don't want to pay, uh, you know, you don't want to pay $3.60, for example, if you think that in six months, the spot price, or what you can sell wheat at for, is going to be 3.20. Pay 360, you've overpaid. 
you want to pay obviously less than that, so uh, maybe you want to pay three dollars. But someone's already selling in a spot basis today at three dollars, so that's not going to work. So what I'm trying to say here is that there is this dynamic between, you know, uh, a rounds up approach from how much you you know you want to pay the least amount here, but really if you're already selling at a spot price here, there's uh, a floor underneath the price and there's a ceiling of the price. Um, now let's approach it back from the other side. Um, so we know this, he wants, uh, the speculator doesn't want to pay uh, too much. Obviously the green elevator operator doesn't want to pay, uh, doesn't want to get too little. He needs to make sure that the price he paid, which is $3, and the price he's going to get is going to cover the cost of storage. And the cost of storage includes fundamentally the um, uh, cost of constructing the elevator, the amortization of the capital that was put into it, but also includes insurance. And actually, most importantly, in the, in the grain market, this is an aside, it, it includes the cost of transporting it from the elevator to the uh, destination, which is typically a, a large grain exchange like Kansas City or Chicago, from which you would distribute grain uh, across you know, to, to various uh, markets throughout the world. Um, so he has a certain price that he must cover here. So let's say for six months, that's 25 cents. Okay. So if he knows if he can buy wheat at $3 and his cost is 25 cents for the cost of storage, the futures, the minimum futures price or what he's willing to sell at is going to be $3.25. So in effect, if you think about this, he's not even, even going to buy here the, the spot price unless he can get um, unless he can sell in the futures market for three twenty-five. As soon as he's as soon as he's bought here at three dollars, he's got immediate risk that the price could go down because let's say that uh, FDA or uh, USDA report comes out and says the wheat harvest is triple the size of what it was. <laughs> wheat collapses a dollar. He just bought for three dollars. Times a two-dollar loss. So, so the way this is actually done is the first thing that the, uh, the, the grain elevator operator will do is call his broker and say, what's, what's my basis? Uh, and the, the, what, because, uh, no, let me back up a little bit. Uh, this is probably, <laughs> yeah. Let's just say that he, he will call his, his broker and say, what is the futures price? And they'll say, okay, well, 320 is what, you know, someone's willing to, uh, to buy at. And uh, working backwards, you would then say, well, my cost is two, two, uh, 25 cents for storage, so I can only pay 295. Okay, see how that works? Yep. So this is an important thing because it demonstrates that it's a two-way road. This is one, this is a, not, no one really talks about this, but this is like the most fundamental thing about the basis that you've got inputs from both the futures, someone's only willing to pay a certain price, and there's a floor and a ceiling on that. And then there's this storage component here. When that's added back into that, you get back to the spot market. The guy that's selling wheat, you can sell the grain operator, uh, grain elevator operator at a certain price. 
you can sell directly to a bakery or whoever, you know, end user uh, at some price. So he won't even put it here if that price is too low. And that price might be too low because this price is too low. So if you don't have speculators in the market, what happens? Your price, your, right? So depending on, on uh, in this particular situation, um, if there's less speculators in the market, the top price paid might be 280. So the most that he could pay to the uh, farmer is 255. So your price is lower. So in effect, the futures market is as, as, as much as it's maligned, and in fact, even in, in gold and silver works this way, has just a natural tendency, just by its own existence, to essentially provide a, a, a price. It's a price stabilizer, but in this instance, in that ground, it actually can get a higher price than you would, than you would otherwise get. Uh, now, it gets way beyond this and gets more complex, but, but what I'm trying to ex explain here is this dynamic that occurs. Uh, that, that there's a, a, a mechanism okay, that essentially uh, gets to a certain price and price with the inputs from both directions. And if you think back what I just started this with is with the spot price and there's the bids and asks at different rates and you kind of come to a, to a, a certain level, um, it actually plays into that, into that same theory. Uh, and that's actually the reason why, for example, Kitco doesn't, I believe, that you know, they don't publish the actual trading price, but they use these algorithms to kind of come up with what um, what should be the price that it's that, that trades settle at. Any individual trade could be all over the place, but if you're in the market long enough, you see where this is coming from, you see where this is coming from, from speculators, what speculators want to pay, what producers are willing to sell at. You close that gap and you use these algorithms algorithms to essentially come up with a price. Um, unfortunately, because it is the bullying banks, you you know, it, 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 it gives you a sense of, well, step back, but um, in the next couple of days, they're, you know, I'll go through some things that kind of provide some examples of how you could actually uh, uh, look at some other data to make sure that the prices that you're getting for the spot price aren't off. Um, so even though this is a... Uh, uh, something that, that seems enigmatic, we can use other data from different markets because there, there are quite a few markets for gold and silver. If you're creative enough to think of what they, you know, what they are, then you can actually sort of triangulate and make sure that the prices that you're looking at are like totally out of the market. Um, are there any questions on this? Uh, does it always get squeezed um, back? Stand, stand Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Does it always get squeezed back on the producer? In your example, it seems that everything that was dictated by the futures was squeezed back, back to the producer. So the grain elevator operator was limited by what he could say as the price to the producer of the wheat based on what was being happening between himself and the future. Flow-on effect back to the producer always in effect, or is it just because of this particular example that you provide? I think that well, there's two two pieces. One is that the, the grain elevator operator couldn't care less what the spotter and future prices. All they care is that they get more than this. If they can get more than 25 cents, they make money on the difference between the two. 
they get less than 25 cents, <coughs> presumably they don't, you know, they don't sell the storage, but they may have fixed costs they have to cover, so they might actually sell, you know, they might actually do a transaction of less. Here, this is this is essentially what the basis is. So just, sorry. Does but that, no, okay, but, but no. Does that mean that they sorry, push push back onto the futures market? Ask I think there, there are, there are certainly, these are, that's why I try to explain this as a dynamic, so I don't think there's any static, producers always have the edge, or speculators have the edge. Um, although, I would say, in the gold and silver market, especially in the COMEX, the speculators probably at some time, certain periods of time, have the edge. Uh, the, and especially with uh, uh, with silver now in the last few years, the leasing has really, there's almost no leasing, and there's very little forward selling by, by producers. So it's almost an inducement, as it were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to get this trade to take place, uh, whereas for for grain, you know there you know there isn't really too much of a choice. You either sell for what you can get for today, or you sell to a grain elevator operator that is put into storage. But typically, this price will be you know will probably usually be a little bit lower. It's just that there's only so much of uh, immediate demand that there is out there. So once this is fulfilled, typically this will end up being the better price. And that's being held up by how much the speculators are willing to uh, take uh, long positions in this case um, against the short that the greater is moving in place. But, um, and and this, the, this is how I, I don't know if this is fundamentally right, but the way I think about the basis is, is long physical short futures. But certainly, if someone's got a different mindset or they're pulling back, maybe they're thinking short, physical, long futures. It's the flip side, so it should work the same way, but uh, it just seems unholy to me. <laughs> you know, to say short to physical. <laughs> you gotta be long to physical. Uh, any other questions on this? Just on this. Could you please stand up? Sorry. <laughs> In this situation here, to the futures market, producers can still dictate the price if there's a shortage of grain. In other words, it's a, it's a drought situation. Correct. That's the dynamic. That's the dynamic. Right. What happens with the, the gold market if it's in a constant deficit syndrome? Yeah, okay, you've got central banks selling into it, but I mean, there's a different market, isn't it, if you've got a constant deficit? How they, I mean, shouldn't the dynamics change a little bit there? I think if you got a constant deficit and there isn't yeah. central bank selling and there isn't leasing and there's all these other things, yeah. paper being substituted yeah, for okay. physical, yeah. I think you probably would have the situation where the producers, I think that's what you're trying to get at, yeah. if you took away all those other things, yeah. made them illegal or something else, mm. would the producers be in a position, position to exactly. dictate, exactly. or not necessarily dictate the price, but be yeah. on the, you know, on the forward side well, of the dynamic. Well, why they never do, that's cool. Right. Well, you know, because uh, I mean, we can get into this, but you know, sure. they, they have to pay for you know the yeah. diesel and for labor and such. So they have to sell the gold that they produce, sure. unless if the gold price is so much above the marginal cost of production that they can withhold okay. a portion yeah. of the production. Um, but yeah, I mean, that wouldn't be a strategy unless you were in a situation that you yeah, had sure. no alternatives uh, other than you know, selling directly to the end or whoever was processing it for the end users. But because you have the futures on the other side, you in fact have the demand that all sets. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, 
I mean, I suppose that in some respects the speculators can take advantage of that, knowing for well the gold companies have to sell because they have to pay their costs. But there might be strategies, but if yeah. you're just looking at this as a transaction, yeah, a this, happens in, yeah. this happens in real time and it's yeah. a matching process. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I guess if someone was willing to buy more futures in this case, you know, I suppose, but there's actually, well, I, get, I don't know if I'm going to get to this today. But, uh, there's also the other side of it. Too, so could you stand up if you're going to? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Always the other side of it, too, is that in the grey situation, they usually take the contract, they usually take the delivery date, whereas in the futures, that they don't. No, they don't. No. <coughs> oh, they, oh, okay. Not usually. Not usually. Not usually. No. Uh, most most uh, contracts are are pulled forward. Pulled forward. Um, okay. Some are some are settled. Some are. It's called exchange for physical. Very creative futures contract by exchange for physical one. Right. But uh, yeah. Most uh, of you have a question. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not so much prejudice of answer to that. I mean, at least from the firm experience, gold miners don't actually deal with physical. As soon as they get to the refinery, they don't want to credit the market and they're out of the physical market. So there's this, there is this disconnect where the producer is not really engaged in that market in the physical sense of saying, right, oh, there's a jeweler you want it, there's a mint you want it. It's like, I've washed my hands, I've done this, so I've given it to the refinery, but it's credit in market, and now I'll play some game with the bullion bank. Either forward or futures or trading or an unallocated amount. So, you know, in that sense, the power is not there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I'm, I'm trying to be really, really sure. simple. But these are good questions because yeah. I think they help understand things. Um, okay. So I'm going to sort of build on this concept. Uh, hopefully, I can explain this. I was trying to explain it to myself. I don't think I really fully got it. So we'll see how it goes. But, um, what I want to illustrate here is the um, is the idea that in gold and silver they're unique because their contango cannot increase above a certain amount. So we talked about the 25 cents on that previous page for the grain operator. Grain only operator. Presumably there might be a scenario where that could be a dollar, two, you know, three or whatever. I mean, you know, depending on what the scenario is. In gold and silver, I don't think that can happen. It hasn't happened historically, and I think the reason it hasn't happened is because of us. Okay. We're going to take a fantastical situation where the, uh, the futures price of gold is $1,000. So let's just make this December. So I'm going to say this is this December 2009 contract for gold. So what this means is that I, could, I would essentially sell gold at $1,000 in one year for December 2009. Um, but let's say that the spot price of gold, for what I can buy gold for today, is $800. So, can anyone tell me what the what the contango here is? It's two hundred dollars. Absolutely. We'll get into in the next couple of days why we really don't want to think about it as two hundred dollars. But for this example, uh, well, actually, we may need to. Um, let's see how it goes. Okay. Uh, so in this case, we have a two hundred dollar. If, if you were presented with this, what would you do? Buy. What would you do? Buy. Buy what? 
Five percent. And then do what? Sell it. No, you can do something better. Sell it. Sells where? So you're saying buy this and sell that one? Sell the futures? Well, you've done a horrible thing. You've sold a futures contract. You're short. Well, you're not naked, but would you? Are you still really recommending that you should do this? No. Would, would, is there someone here that wouldn't would do this? Because they want to be poor and not make a story for two hundred bucks. Yeah. Why not, right? Store it for 200 bucks for a year, why not? What would it cost you? It's one ounce of gold. How much would it cost you to store it for a year? Well, assuming, assuming you're professional, but assuming that you're, you know, like one, like half a percent is, I think, what it costs, okay, to, to store allocated gold. But half a percent of a thousand or even $800 is $4, right? So soon as you do this, what have you done? See that? Yeah. Risk free, right? Yeah. Meaning nothing, doesn't matter what happens with the price of gold, it could go to a dollar, go to a million dollars, doesn't matter. You have immediately locked in $196 game. Right? Yeah. So, okay, based on American, American dollars. <laughs> Maybe this might be a realistic price for Australian dollars, I don't know. Okay. Uh, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that if you could, if you would be willing to do this, you think there are people more like you know, uh, 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 you say, uh, predatory <laughs> in the market that would be want to do it even more than you. Let's say, let's say it wasn't this. Let's say it was. My ninety today and a thousand. Would you still do it? It may not be worth it because now you put 990 in, you could have like gotten a CD at 3% or whatever, that's going to earn you $30, you're eating at $6, right? So, but there might be, right? There could be someone. Why? Why would someone maybe even do this even though they could earn $3, 3% 3, 3 on a CD or $30 or whatever? expect that rise in the price. Well, you've already sold, you've already sold up. You've already bought you could, but but you would still only have this whatever tiny one 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 percent. Leverage. Yeah, yeah, you could. But, but you're buying the 990. This is cash you're putting out today, right? Okay. So I think what the reason might be is because you own this gold for a full year. So what, what is your fear? Why would you do, because remember we talked about 196 risk-free gain. Why would you not take $90,000 and put it into a CD at a bank uh, before they started guaranteeing pretty much everything in the world? And even if they did, it's still just dollars. Right, because this, this can go someplace. This can go to nothing. I mean, as we might learn from Nathan and uh, Ron, you know, next, tomorrow that maybe we're closer that you know, the $990 for a CD could go to nothing, but the $990 in gold is going to be there. But what if this guy defaults and can't buy it for 1000 Then you keep it. So that's the worst case scenario is that the other guy defaults. 
right? So there's probably some level at which you might be willing to do this even though you earn less than what you might earn put, putting that money into a, a CD. So if you're predatory enough and you're thinking along these lines and you weigh your risks you know, properly and you're thinking that, well, if I keep it in, you know, in fiat, then it, you know, it can go to nothing. If I have this gold, I've locked in some gain. And, and, and the worst that can happen to me is this guy defaults. And, and, and remember, and this, and this, now this money could be borrowed also, so this might not even be your money. You, know, you could have borrowed this, you, know, you could borrow yen, for example, and then how much did you pay there? Half a percent, quarter, maybe zero. So you know you've got a lot to work with. Okay. Um, now this has all sorts of implications, but what I want to demonstrate here is that in gold and silver, it's virtually impossible to have a contango that that, that exceeds uh, interest, the rate of interest. And even then, it's typically it's typical that the contango is going to be some fraction of that. Okay. Whereas, uh, and I don't know if some of you guys can read my website, I put a thing out there a few weeks ago saying that the commodity complex was still sort of collapsing because not only are people, not only were there speculators at the hedge funds and investment funds, but there's also speculation that was being done by the, uh, the producers themselves that they were buying additional inventory on the way up and now they're selling. And it's really, it doesn't require a lot because prices are throwing margins that wouldn't take a lot of selling you know, of and the example I gave was rhodium, which is actually something that someone wrote up a few months ago. Which I think it was GM that bought a bunch of rhodium on the way up, and then they got squeezed, and they brought in a new purchasing manager, and they decided, well, we're going to sell at the top. They start selling at you know ten thousand, and rhodium is now fourteen hundred dollars, down eighty six percent. So that's just one market, but palladium, uh, nickel, zinc. Look at every single commodity, and you see these sixty. 80% drops. You look at how much the speculative, speculative uh, positions are in the you know, in the various futures markets. They haven't dropped as much as they increased increased prices. So I think the missing element of this is the uh, is, is what some no one's really focusing at, which are which are producers that in fact have been uh, uh, dumping. Not a lot, but it doesn't take a lot in a market that's pretty weak where there's almost no money. In any case, what I'm trying to say is that back in 2001, I was, uh, what I was trying to say is the, just a little bit, um, my theory was that the point at which uh, the commodity markets will bottom is when professionals will start buying the physical in order to store it and sell it forward, and the storage costs will be such a small fraction of what they can sell it forward at that it's a risk-free profit. Just the same as I illustrated here, except you do it in oil, you do it in wheat, you do it in whatever it is that you do it. Okay, and so I, I was thinking, well, what you know, what kind of contango would there have to be historically? Like, what are some larger contangos that we've seen that would mark bottoms? Okay, and so I didn't do this in a lot of different things. I only had a couple of people that said they won't be, but uh, I did look at oil, and it turns out that in 2001, oil. Uh, and I used two different contracts. It was December 2001, oil. And, and I did this in October 15th, whatever. So on October 15th of 2001, the December 2001 oil future contract was trading at $24. Okay, $24 per barrel, right? And then the March 2002 futures contract was trading at $28. 
Now that 24.28 doesn't seem like a huge amount, but when you actually annualize that and translate it to an annual rate differential between those two, it turns out to be 56%. So theoretically, all you have to do is buy, you know, at 24, sell at 28, figure out how to store it for three months, and whatever that costs, you subtract 56% from it, and, and you know, that's very, very healthy. <laughs> We're nowhere near that. Right now, oil is pretty much like even. It was actually backwardation, and now it's just starting to go into the tango. So, you know, it may have quite a ways to go before, you know, maybe even finding bottom. If this is the theory that sticks in terms of when the bottom is formed, when producers are no longer um, dumping, not dumping is a, is a strong word, selling incrementally, but more importantly, when professionals it's, spe it's not speculation, but it's, it's a warehouse. It's a warehouse. It's, I mean, they're going to earn a risk-free profit. If they can lock in, you know, what their cost is for storage, that just by doing this, they're going to, you know, lock it in. Um, the difference, of course, being that if someone defaults on this, you're stuck with oil, and, you know, <laughs> it's not as good as being stuck with, with, with gold or silver. I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't personally done it, but I would presume it's easier to, <laughs> to be stuck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know where I'm going to store my barrels of oil. <laughs> so, and that's exactly, I think, one of the reasons why um, the, you're never going to see this in gold and silver. For one, because of this, but for, for two, because I asked you guys here, and people are willing to almost do it at $990 because it's so easy to store gold and silver. We talked about the, you know, people wear, warehousing for themselves, but really professional warehousing is still a legitimate business. It may be for a few more months, probably long enough for, <laughs> probably long enough for everyone to be able to take advantage of the contango that got way out of control. And certainly for someone that's a professional, you know, sort of a, uh, bullying bank or even an investor, it can be anyone, but someone with a lot of money, obviously, that uh, um, that would take advantage of the situation. Um, there, this, I think this is like the most important thing um, that most professional analysts that I've talked to or read their stuff, they, they totally miss this because this, this contangle and the fact that it can't go past a certain limit explains why, what, what the effect of uh, the uh, hedging that was done in the 80s, starting in the 80s and through the 90s and the 2000s with Barrick and all those guys, what the central bank leasing and gold sales, why those, what, why the effects on the, the price was what it was. Um, and I don't know if I'll have a chance to get into this. I'll have to, again, try to explain it to myself <laughs> so that I can understand it well before I can explain it to you. But um, it, this one concept is able to explain all those things. And meanwhile, you see all these people sort of coming up with these complex, you know, explanations for exactly. You know, obviously, sell. You know, you, when you when you forward sell, you, you, you then there's a long position, so you want to lease. And you no, know, this this if I have time in the next couple of days, uh, really explains it all. And uh, I think it, it it opened my mind really to understanding price dynamics. Uh, and again, it, it works because of the basis. If you don't start out with the, with the basis, of, you know, as your as your preceptors, your you know, your sort of frame, framework, you don't get to this. And because no one really studies the basis, no one else has really gotten to this. Any questions on this? Aren't we not seeing a contradiction of that in the current share markets where equities are trading more like cash net? Uh, so it's just a matter of perception. 
market doesn't believe you make money in the future, it doesn't matter how much cash you've got, these companies are trading at less than cash. Right. No, I actually, I, I, we, we actually do this thing, um, we have a service we, one of the things we do is try to find all those companies in the junior mining sector. We have them in Australia, but Canada, U.S. Um, we're now up to 100 companies, uh, I think 1,800 of the junior, even some senior gold, silver, all sorts of mining companies that are trading at less than cash. Um, I think that's a little bit different, but may have some applicability because that's obviously happened as a result of very few buyers. <laughs> And these large funds like RAM, special situations, Osprey, all these funds, they're going out of business or having to, you know, redeem, you know, large, uh, you know, people's money out of hedge funds. They're just dumping these junior stocks. And in the best of days, junior stocks don't have a very large door for anyone to exit. But, you know, I'm sure any of the guests that invest in this know that, you know, the, the sort of thing that, you know, the exit is very, very small in the junior stock market, meaning that it's very difficult to squeeze through. There's a bunch of people selling. You're, you know, you might have 10 million shares on dock to be sold, and maybe only 10,000 10, share of demand per day. So work at the price of, of, of a stock, a good stock, with a lot of cash, more cash than shares are trading for. If you've got 3 million shares uh, on the block to be sold and only 10,000 to be bought, it's going to trade below its cash. It's an adjustment period. It's not going to keep. It's not going to stay below its cash. But until that this that that, that that process is completed, until those 3 million shares that need to be sold are sold. 10,000 shares at a time, you know, how much is that, 300 days, whatever, I'm just using an example, but, you know, you're, it could take a long time to do that. You're saying that situation can't happen in that way. So the situation, the equivalent here would be someone selling physical gold, right? So if someone just was saying, where perceptions become such that you people won't buy them people that won't buy gold at any price. So there, there, there's some people that are buying gold because, you know, I'll buy gold at some price. And many of you probably, if you found out that there's 10 ounces sitting, you know, at the local coin shop here, might want to buy those 10 ounces today. So, and I don't think you, you really, you know, you can really say that in this case. Are, are there a lot of you guys here that are buying, you know, 3 million shares of juniors? <laughs> but, but look, they're trading below cash. I mean, it's, it's risk-free profits, my friend. <laughs> Everyone's looking for that, right? I'm looking for it to turn around. You should be buying it because, it, you know, especially when you've got when you've got 100 million cash, as some of these companies have, and a 25 million market cap, and what could go wrong? Unless they have these, the cash release A, B, C, D, so, you know, because maybe the, the, maybe that's the part of it. If you get if you're if you're a believer. And, and this is what this report we wrote, with, the title is actually Cash is King with a question mark. Meaning typically, obviously, you know, people say cash is king, but if you're a junior investor, you don't want your company to be, to have, you know, cash sitting around because you believe cash is trash. So you might actually punish them for having a cash. It's kind of a dichotomy, but, you know, that might also play into it that in fact, you know, holding 60 million in treasury, US treasuries, or 60 million at, at a bank account someplace where, you know, 250, like the U.S. is 250,000 is the FDIC insurance. Who knows if they'll raise it to 50 million? They probably will at some point, but maybe not before this thing goes. You know, bank goes out, and then you lose all the cash. So that could also play into it. Even though cash is trash. This is gold, though. No one's going to say that about gold. Um, and and when gold price has been pressured, now I don't know. It's hard to say. Has the selling that's happened the last three months? How much of it was physical? How much of it was uh, how much of it was uh, futures? 
you know, whatever it was, there was a relationship as both kind of came down. Now, so we'll see in the next couple of days that we've had two prices, the, the futures and the spot price converge, the contango decreasing. And, and there's the, the main reason for that actually is the small, you know, retail uh, buyer. It doesn't take a huge amount to sort of start upsetting this market when it's gone long. You know, this, the retail buying really started in February, March, you know, but it didn't really gain the steam until prices, you know, especially in silver, came down to like twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars, and then all hell broke loose, and you couldn't find any more silver. And you know, I don't know how much it was probably thirty, you know, it was thirty or forty million ounces. That's a very significant amount, and it's purely acting on the spot price. It has very little at ten dollars or eleven dollars. It has really very little to do with the futures. Very different from the wholesale market, where almost every transaction involves a forward swap or a future something, you know, there, you know, I mean, there's outright buying there too, but it isn't typical that someone would just go out and coolly, you know, just buy 40 million ounces, you know, on the wholesale market to board. It's probably gonna happen, it's probably starting to happen, uh, but that that wasn't the case in the last six months, but it was the case that probably about that much silver was taken off the retail, you know, off the retail shelves. Any other questions on are you telling Could us? Could you stand up? Yes. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Are you telling us that what we should do short, uh, cover short selling, um, as long as there is contango, basically, you know, with interest rates going down virtually nil? Is, is that what you're telling us? Uh, that we should all become Chinese on gold? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would suggest that you can get this, the original number, the 800 to 1,000, for sure, unless, you know, you just don't like, you know, if you like to leave money sitting, you know, just let me know if that's the case, I'll go ahead and do that. But um, the fact is, it's very competitive. That You know, that's why, precisely why Contango hasn't really been above, you know, this, you know, 4, four 5%. I mean, even when interest rates were higher, I didn't take it back to the late 70s, early 80s, where it was like 18%, but, you know, when I was 8, 10%, it was still like in the 4, 5, 6% range as far as contango. Uh, and so it, you know, it really doesn't get that high because it doesn't have the chance. As soon as, it, as, soon as there's uh, the, you know, divergence, the spot price of the futures moves away from the other, some bullion bank, someone that's faster than someone else and pushing a button will take advantage of that arbitrage and lock it in. So if you can find it, I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that you do it, but you know, consider your family's welfare. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because isn't it like contrary to Could you what stand up? Yeah. It's interesting because isn't it contrary to what logic would tell you, you know, if you're bullish gold, what would you show? Well in this case here, you know, I wouldn't say you wouldn't necessarily just want to buy it outright, you know, because if you think it's gonna go easily over a thousand, now probably in ninety percent, you know, of the time you're gonna be wrong. But that ten percent when you're right, you can be right in a big way, right? Meaning go go five thousand or whatever. So the two two hundred you'd earn here is like, you know, is nothing. But history being what it is, that only happens once in a blue moon. So, you know, you could have done this for 30, 40 years and only had a couple times when you, it would have been better for you just to buy outright. And given that you can do this three months ahead, you know, in forty years there's for 120 periods. So you can do this 120 times and make money this way, and one time make money because the price of gold actually exceeded the, the futures price. Okay, um, so th that's 
but that's the mindset too. If you think about what bullion banks do, that's one of the reasons why they're so. You might say, well, they're inclined. If I'm conspir, you know, even if I'm not even thinking about conspiracy, they're just inclined to be short selling. But really, this mechanism here tells you why that this idea of shorting on the futures against physicals, bull and bear skin, is that what you call it, right? <laughs> this is one aspect of that. Actually, there's different ways that they can do this. This is very natural to them because banks are, in fact, arbitrage mechanisms or intermediaries. They take one rate and you know earn money in effect by lending at a higher rate. Or they'll take a currency and they sell it, you know, like at the airport. You know, I had 50 US dollars. What's, what's the exchange of 65, right? And at the airport, I gave him $50 US and I got $55 Australian. It's like, wait a second, it's 90? It's, I thought it was 65. <laughs> but all the fees they take out, right? So that's how they make their money. So this is just another way for them to make money. Any other questions? Another question. Uh, can you run down your website, please? Yeah. <laughs> I have one question. <laughs> It's a mess right now, I'm going to tell you, but in the next few days I'm going to start updating again. But there's probably enough content on the blog part, which if you go, there's a little thing that says click here for recent comments, and I've probably posted about 90 comments in the last three months. So someone told me it took 26 hours to read through it. So it's probably enough for... Where the least rates coming to this picture? The goal is in the least Okay, uh, because it's late and I don't want to torture anyone else, uh, I'll probably get into that <laughs> another day. <laughs> But it does come into it, and uh, I actually have a, a relatively simple way of explaining lease rates that work off this model. Once once you kind of understand this, uh, it sort of allows you to take that next step. Anyone else? Tom, could you, since you moved on the website, could you? Everyone read that, maybe? Could you uh, say a few words about the services you, you are offering, the base, basis tracking? I'm too humble to do that. <laughs> Just a few words. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, basically, one of the things uh, uh, that uh, we launched a couple months ago, and I say launched, we haven't really fully launched it, but we're, ex we're already taking money. But no, we actually have been issuing reports, but the idea is this will be a website, uh, it's called Metal Augmentor. It, if you go, uh, write it down, okay. Right now, basically, it's focused more on the on, on uh, mining companies because my partner, does that almost exclusively, and he's been the one that has time to have done anything with it. Uh, okay, um, I'll try to write it bigger later. Metalaugmentor.com. Um, this is going to be a service uh, that, that um, I'm going to basically have a much more in-depth analysis than I have on my own website, uh, examining these kind of factors, interrelated factors in the silver and gold market, and with an emphasis specifically <coughs> and on the metals in, in, from the framework of the basis. So I'm gonna, in the next couple of days, I'm gonna be showing some things here that will I will be updating and tracking as part of the service when I when, when, when launch. Um, hopefully we launch it before the whole thing is all over. <laughs> <laughs>
the uh, recovery, the Japanese, for example, did quite a bit of recovery uh, off of uh, this industrial. This is the recycling, the rate yeah. of recycling. How do you take into account those kinds of factors? Well, for example, I mean, there's a certain amount of hedging that you know that Eric does and that sort of thing. You can pretty much age a certain amount of that hedging that occurs. When you start talking about recycling, the price goes up, there's certain factors that enter into the market that I suspect would affect this whole ballgame here is that that's going to come out of the woodwork and wouldn't be otherwise necessarily coming out. Well, I think, you know, there's a different, there, you know, you can look at micro factors and macro factors. Micro factors uh, is what you look at from a... You have the, the, the okay, there's a, maybe you want a clarification on the question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you can clarify. Oh, you want, okay. So yeah. the question is, I think, the, uh, I guess I'll paraphrase it, it's going to be this question, um, that um, as prices increase for gold and silver, some people uh, will increase the amount of recycling uh, of industrial recycling, industrial or even, or even like you know, the little sterling silver, a little gold, whatever. I mean, I see this all the way. All, I don't know if over here you guys see this, but there's a lot more. We buy gold, and that kind of thing going on, and you know, the, I don't know, the pawn shops or whatever. But they're all over the place. Okay, it's in radio. I even heard it on radio. So, you know, there's probably going to be more recycling, and therefore that stuff gets melted down and it adds to supply. So, how do I take that into account in price, in you know, price analysis? That's the question I have to ask. And I, what I was saying is that, you know, I look at it as macro and micro factors. And, and the macro factors paint the background, but as far as the action, the today's action, this week's, next month's, or whatever action, they really don't have a lot to, you know, a lot, a lot to say. But in terms of what the story is, or what, what where it's headed longer term, certainly that's something to be considered. Um, so if I'm uh, making a trade, Right, I'm buying futures, or I'm doing some other, you know, whatever spread trade or trading the basis. Uh, I would say doesn't doesn't factor in. But if I'm saying that, what is my ultimate target for exiting, you know, a position, a core position that I'm holding, then it could play into it. But of course, it, these are not numbers that anyone agrees to. And the best way you can determine that is just pick up the GFMS and the uh, what's the other one? The uh, that's the other one. Well, virtual metals, but then there's another one of your CPM group, okay? Uh, now, virtual metals coming on the scene, but they're a little bit behind. So, you look at these two reports and you see how much they take from the cycle. And actually, if you pick up virtual metals, it says three times as much. And we're talking about, in the case of silver, like a couple of million ounces. So, if there's that much disagreement, you know, yeah, it's really up in the air. Um, so, I think you can look at it from a longer term perspective that that would be one thing that could play into the future supply, but as far as a regular sort of everyday or even looking forward a year or two, it really I don't think plays into it at all.